0: Well, if you all have heard of this guy, Adoniram Judson, uh, but he's a bit of a hero of mine. Uh, he also has to be the guy after which our church is named, one of the greatest and the first missionaries to ever go from America to a foreign land and bring the gospel. Judson went to Burma and brought the gospel there and uh, it's been exciting to see many Christians coming from Burma to America and see how on fire for Jesus they are and and that legacy and they're bringing the gospel now to a culture here that is greatly in need of it but it was not easy going and there was a lot of suffering that both Adoniram and all three of his wives, not at the same time, but uh, in succession, uh, because of how difficult things were, and uh, uh, he, he, he continually was struggling and wondering, is it worth it? And there was a period there where Burma and England were at war. And during that time, Judson was actually imprisoned. He had nothing to do with it. He had no uh, torn allegiance. He was an American. But because he looked like the enemy, they threw him in prison and following unspeakable sufferings in and, and the filth and, and even torture and, and uh, all sorts of ill treatment, he was released. And at that time, he appeared before the king of Burma, and he asked for permission to go to our particular village and preach the gospel. And the king of Burma responded, I am willing for a dozen preachers to go, but not you. Not with those hands. My people are not such fools as to take notice of your preaching, but they will take notice of those scarred hands. There is something to be said for someone who has suffered for the gospel and continues to be faithful for the gospel. And what a witness that is that even a pagan king knew that the gospel would continue to spread throughout his land if those scarred hands were bringing it. And throughout Christian history, of course, believers have been crucified, burned at the stake, torn apart by wild beasts, tortured, beheaded, and the like. This continues today. It has been said that a Christian is murdered every four minutes for his or her belief in Jesus, even to this very year. And it's estimated that 100 million Christians were put to death for their faith in the 20th century, which is more than all 19 previous centuries combined. And this century is shaping up to see even more. And from the very beginning, Jesus told his followers to count the cost of being his disciple, that they were expected, if they followed him, to deny themselves, take up their cross, lay down their lives, and 11 of 12 disciples died a martyr's death, just as many continue to die this day. And that's something we should not forget. We should be aware of it. We should be in prayer about it. We should be saying to each other as Christians in a free land, how can we be a help and a comfort to those people who are suffering for their faith even now on the other side of the world? And this is something certainly worthy of a deep biblical study, but not today, because in this passage, I don't believe that is what we see in view, even though we see the word persecute twice. First here in verse 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. Jonathan read all of the Beatitudes for context, but we're going to be looking at 10, 11, and 12. And verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here, the word persecute used in the the Greek is a broad term. It actually means uh, to chase or pursue someone, and it can mean something as as extreme and intense as putting people to death en masse, or it can mean something that falls far short of that, but is still a pursuit and is still a persecution. And it ultimately, at its core, I think, means that someone's got your number. They're out to get you. And given the context here, perhaps we could translate this, blessed are the harassed. Because when we look at the examples given... When Jesus is telling you blessed are you in different situations or blessed are you uh, if particular conditions are met, here the examples seem to indicate one being harassed, mocked, put apart, ostracized. In fact, let's look at them here in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Revile, that word for insult or revile, Woodenly translated, it means to cast into the teeth. I think you can probably see how that would come to mean an insult. This is the worst kind of insult. You know, this isn't somebody just uh, in the comment section online saying something about you. No, this is someone right up in your grill, and they're in, you know they're they're putting it right in your teeth. There, uh, it seems to me that this is more a situation where people around you hear the insult and laugh and point and say, ha-ha, burn, rather than where people are actually, you know, burned, which is a different kind of persecution. And and when we look at the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's relating of the same basic teachings, but in a different context, it's just slightly different wording. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. By the way, the word blessed there, Makarios, it means happy. It means means being in a state of blessedness. And that's so paradoxical. Blessed are you when they hate you? When they exclude you? Do you feel blessed when you're excluded or reviled or when someone spurns your name as evil? Well, it happens in the Old Testament. And many people in the Old Testament are persecuted both in that, that very terminal way where they are put to death for their faith and before that, in this sort of way where they are ostracized, where they are insulted, where they are mocked. Paul fought wild animals. He was beaten, flogged, imprisoned, shipwrecked, eventually beheaded, but he was also called foolish, laughed at, mocked. He was called strong on paper but feeble in person. He was called a fool, Called himself a fool. We'll get to that in a moment. First Peter 4, we got a guy uh, writing who eventually would be persecuted and then killed, uh, crucified. He, he said, I'm not going to let you crucify me right side up. I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. And it took yet longer according to tradition. But this is what he wrote in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory rests upon you. So both in the fiery trial being assaulted, and in the being insulted, we are sharing in Christ's sufferings, according to that text and according to the witness of Scripture as a whole. Jesus also, though he eventually went to the cross and endured more than any other person had endured, even having the weight of the sin of the world piled on his shoulders while he died, was also mocked, ostracized, and put out of his hometown They called him crazy. They said he has a devil. They, When they were uh, actively crucifying him, they were mocking him. When he went to Herod, Herod had him uh, dressed up like a king and and had him uh, put a crown of thorns on his head and and a rod in his hand, and they bowed down and falsely fake-worshipped him. And then they took the rod and beat him with it. He was mocked even on the cross. They said to each other loudly, hey, come on down. You said that you were God. You know, maybe we'll worship you if you can save yourself. Now, we don't look for any type of persecution. We don't seek it out. But when it comes, it is proof that we are imitating Christ's suffering. We're suffering for his sake, walking in his footsteps. But not all the apostles were put to death for their faith. Uh, Peter and John are two Different examples, right? Peter died a martyr's death, and Jesus told him he would. Right after reinstituting him, right after bringing him back into the fold, he's like, got some tough news for you. You are going to die a death that will glorify me. And I find these words so creepy and haunting. He says, when you were a young man, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will spread out your arms, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then John says, he told him this, to show the kind of death with which he would honor God. And when he hears this, he looks back, he sees John, Saint John, although he wasn't Saint John yet, he was just like Johnny, following behind, and he says, uh, what about him? Right? Misery loves company, he wanted to be able to commiserate, and Jesus says, if I want him to live until I come back, what, what business is it of yours? And, of course, we know that John then did uh, die a natural death, although that wasn't for lack of trying. He, he was uh, put out to uh, Patmos, exiled there. He was actually uh, boiled in oil, according to tradition, but it didn't kill him. But ultimately, he did live a long life and died a uh, natural death. So we see some like Stephen or Peter or Paul or Priscilla and Aquila, who are, are killed as martyrs. And then there are others, like John, Barnabas, Apollos, as far as we know, who, while they faced much difficulty and were often persecuted in the sense of pursuing you, insulting you, trying to ruin your good name, all of these things that Jesus talks about here did not die for their faith. Or even go back to the Old Testament. There are the prophets who are killed. Jesus referenced that a lot, right? He'll reference it here in this text. But a lot of them aren't. They're just mocked. They're just... They're just laughed at, laughed to scorn. Or look at Noah for all this time building this boat. And everyone walks by. Nobody's trying to kill Noah, but they sure mock him. They sure laugh at him. And it's a significant thing when this happens. We don't want to say to ourselves, well, buck up. That shouldn't, you know, sticks and stones. Don't worry about it. This shouldn't change my mood. I can't let them get inside my head. This is no big deal. It is significant. When we look at the Psalms, Frequently, David will talk about how his enemies are reviling him. In fact, Psalm 22, which is the one that begins with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is what Jesus quotes from the cross right before he gives up the ghost. You read the psalm and you say, wow, this is about the crucifixion. David wrote it about a situation he was in and the Holy Spirit was in there going, every line is about, you know, this is going to be fulfilled in Christ's crucifixion, down to the point of his hands and feet being pierced etc. But listen to these words from Psalm 22. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And as you read through that, yes, there's a lot about how I can see my bones and all these things that are about his physical suffering, but it's about half and half with the description of being mocked, reviled, and insulted, and being actually physically uh, tortured and and killed. And, And that is the kind of situation in which a Christian can expect to walk. Not all of us are going to be put to death. In the early church, the vast majority of people were not put to death, and yet there was a cost to following Jesus. He said to count the cost. There was a taking up of their cross daily. It's never popular to follow Jesus, and yet we are told here that if we are persecuted, if we are targeted, oh, I got your number because you're easy, you're easy to mock because you're going to turn the other cheek, that we are blessed. But I'll tell you what trips me up here. It's not the being insulted and being mocked. I can take that. Our our worldview, it's, it's unpopular. It's countercultural. And so we would expect people to kind of snicker. It's here with the thing about being lied about. When people say all sorts of things falsely about you falsely about you. That's what gets me. It's one thing when people point at you and mock and say, you really believe Jesus is the Son of God? You really believe that he rose again from the dead? And you feel lionized. You feel like, yes, I do, and I'm willing to suffer for it. I'm willing to stand up, and I'm going to be like one of the great saints of old. But it's another thing when people make up evil things to say about you. And from the beginning, this was the case as well. There were three main lies that were told about the church in the early church period. They're all bizarre one that they were atheists how can christians be atheists because they don't have any gods you can see and every time they see a god every time they see a a pagan altar any of these things they're like nope 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 and then when they come together to worship there's no god around what are they doing so they were called atheists secondly that they were cannibals you see where this might come from they had open meetings if you knew where it was you could come and you could stand with the hearers and hear the word but then, when it was time for the Lord's Supper, they would say, if you are not part of the church proper, please leave now. And then they hear about, oh, in there, what are they doing? They're eating flesh, they're drinking blood, and so this lies spread about being cannibals. And then they were finally called incestuous because they referred to each other as brother and sister, and they greeted each other with a holy kiss. And, of course, people's minds, uh, people being wicked, turned that into Christians being incestuous. Well, the idea that we are blessed in being lied about, is so bizarre that Jesus breaks the pattern of the Beatitudes here. This is the last Beatitude they've all been in a very, very strict pattern of. Blessed are, for theirs is, or for they will. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And it goes like that, it goes like that, on and on. It's talking in the third person about those who are pure in heart, those who hunger and and thirst after righteousness. It's all about them and what they will experience as a result. And then we get here, and there is a repetition that we haven't seen before. Blessed are those who are persecuted, third person, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. This is a, a shift. And I think he repeats it because there might be a tendency to think, I misheard this. Wait, what? Or it won't sink in. I'll say, ah, oh, no, 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 I'll think about that later. And so he makes us think about it now by repeating it. And he, he he wants us to know this is not just about them. This may be about you. This will be about you. There will be people, if you follow Jesus, who will mock you and revile you, say wicked things against you, even lie about you. Blessed are you when this happens. I think it's significant also that this is the Eighth Commandment. Yeah, Pastor Zach, with your numbers again. Seven being the number of completion. We have in the Beatitudes, I preached on this 14 years ago. I'm sure it's fresh in your mind. Uh, But in the first few, we have a description of how we should come to God. The proper posture. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who come to to God on their face, knowing they bring nothing to the table but their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning we we mourn our sins. We repent of what we have done and turn from our sins and turn to Christ. Blessed are those who are meek. We come to him not proud and haughty, but humble. And then we hear uh, a description of once we've come to God that way and been born again, what does our life and our heart start to look like? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And blessed are the peacemakers. This is what we should start to see in our lives if we have come to God in this way, poor in spirit, mourning our sin, and meekly. But then we get to this last one. And I think this last one, it's the eighth one, and it's a description here of once all of this is happening in your heart and in your life, you ought to be a pretty good guy or a pretty good lady or a pretty good kid. And you'd think everybody from outside would think, what a nice person. a boy, we'll be very kind to you. And then he hits us from the left side with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You can get to this point of righteousness where God has declared you righteous and sanctified you, and you're walking in the light and righteously, and because of that righteousness, have people pursue you, mock you, lie about you, throw those insults right in your teeth. And that is a difficult thing to hear. We will be persecuted and hated by the world not necessarily put to death not necessarily even openly a lot of persecutions very civilized and very kind of under the surface being lied about is a difficult thing but jesus did it and we walk after him they called jesus a drunkard they called him a glutton neither of those is true they said that he was speaking against moses and against the law not true they hired men to serve as false witnesses at his trial It didn't work because they couldn't keep the story straight, but still the lies were told and became part of the record. Persecution is, yes, often quite civilized. Even in the first century, the majority were not killed, but there was such a great cost. In the early church, from the beginning, it was a very Jewish movement, almost exclusively, meaning that people who came to faith in Christ were part of a Jewish community, And to declare that you are now a follower of Jesus could mean that you would not only be put out of the synagogue, but put out of your community. Ostracized. That wouldn't be unusual. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And the man's enemies will be those in his own household. You could lose your family, lose your job, lose your good name and standing, your respect in the community. And it's not like this went away. Think about significant... Uh, culturally significant people, prominent people who come to faith and the way that people respond. In 1927, T.S. Eliot, the great poet, became a Christian. He was baptized and confirmed. And he had belonged to the Bloomsbury Group, which was a group of people who read the comic Bloomsbury and discussed it. No, it was a small association of artists and intellectuals, sort of the creme de la creme of the the central london scene and when news of his conversion spread they rejected him almost as one he was the same guy just as brilliant just as talented and yet virginia wolf the de facto leader of the group wrote the following to one of the others i have had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear tom elliott who may be called dead to us all from this day forward He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. There is something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Now what's telling in me Is that my first impulse when i read that is to make some snarky comment about how mrs dalloway was the most boring thing i ever tried to read and take a shot at virginia wolf which is odd because she wasn't insulting me and because both she and the person she was insulting are long dead she killed herself 60 years ago and yet in me is still this impulse that says who hit back that's a human thing but jesus says if we're following him we'll ascend higher and that won't be our response. We will turn the other cheek when someone insults us. Uh, uh, this has not gone away in the past hundred years, by the way, either. Uh, one of the great books of our time, I think, is Rosaria Butterfield's memoir. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I think every Christian ought to read it. She was a well respected academic, she was a professor, she was an author. She was, she was very much on the, on the rise as a, a big name in the intellectual world. And then she came to faith, and she was immediately, by almost everyone in her world, not everyone, but almost everyone, thrown aside and, and became someone to be mocked. St. Paul, one of the most brilliant minds mankind has ever seen, he's called a fool. And he says in that passage Jonathan read for us in 1 Corinthians 4, we are fools for Christ's sake. We have to be willing from the world's point of view to be fools if we're going to follow Jesus. Knowing that the world's foolishness is the wisdom of God. A great quote from Catherine Booth, the wife of William Booth, the founders of the Salvation Army. Let me lead hallelujah bands and be a damned fool for Christ in the eyes of the world in order to save souls. There's in that such a great, that that Methodist spirits that i love that says i don't care what the world thinks of me i care what god thinks of me and if i've been faithful yeah i'll put on the regalia and we'll get out the french horn and go walking down the street and everyone's gonna laugh and throw stuff at us except for those who hear the gospel and come to faith and now they've passed from death to life catherine booth william booth they didn't care if people thought that they were silly or to be laughed at they cared if people who heard the gospel came to faith in Jesus Christ I think here in this last of the Beatitudes we also see kind of the converging of many of them right if you are poor in spirit then when you are insulted you're not going to respond in kind and lash back if you do that you're not being poor in spirit I speak from experience right you're being The opposite. You're being prideful. You're being haughty. And a proud spirit, a haughty heart, come before a fall and before destruction. If you are a peacemaker, you're not going to take the bait and respond in kind. If you are merciful, you're going to see, I know why you feel like you have to mock my faith. There's something in you that is broken and something that's missing as a hole. And you know deep down that you need this Jesus. And so you're responding by just trying to laugh it all off. I'll be merciful instead of being merciless and getting in my digs. And especially if we are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What is meekness? It's such a, a difficult thing to talk about in this, in this world, in this age, because people, I think, assume meekness equals weakness. That's not the case. It couldn't be further from the truth. To be meek is to have power under control. Jesus being the greatest example of meekness. I mean, this guy's turning over the tables in the temple courts. He is not afraid to stand up to power when necessary. And yet, like a lamb before his shearers, he is silent When he is standing before those who would condemn him and accuse him and mock him because he came to die for us. Moses also is called meek. I mean, read the things, the exploits of Moses. This is not a weak man. This is not a a, a cowardly man. No, this is someone who is powerful and brave, and yet it is under control. Jesus could have called on 10,000 angels while he was being uh, arrested, while he was being crucified. He could have turned the tables on everyone. We were talking just this morning in our Sunday school class about how when he stood before Herod, he could have made Herod kneel before him. And he could have pointed out that he was not the rightful man to sit on the throne of David, but that Jesus himself was the one who was sitting in the seat of David. But he didn't. He was silent. In a culture that more and more idolizes pride, meekness instead values humility and gentleness. And not escalating, 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 but rather saying, I will be like Christ who turned the other cheek and commanded us to do the same. All of this is well and good, right? I can be at peace with it. I can deal with it. But did Jesus have to tell me to rejoice and be glad when this happens? Rejoice and be glad? And that's not even the worst of it. Again, in the Sermon on the Plain, the parallel text in Luke, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. When you are excluded, reviled, mocked, lied about, leap for joy. Kierkegaard wrote, Most people really believe that the Christian commandments, for example, to love our enemies, are intentionally a little too severe. Like putting the clock ahead half an hour to make sure of not being late in the morning. But I don't think that's true. Jesus does use hyperbole uh, often. But is He here? I don't think so. Because in Acts chapter 5, we see the apostles actually beaten. They are caned for preaching the gospel, for not bowing the knee to the rule of the Sanhedrin and saying, we got to obey God rather than men. And as they leave that place, they're not bellyaching, they're not planning their revenge, they're not even consoling themselves with, well, God will make it right and they're going to suffer someday. No, they are rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for the name. Jesus gives us two reasons why it makes sense to rejoice and be glad when we are persecuted in small ways or big. The first is, for this is how they treated the prophets, in the same way. you're, You're joining now an exclusive club, and as believers who think of the cloud of witnesses and all who've come before us, When you are ostracized, lied about, mocked for your faith, think of the company you are now keeping. The club you just joined. Christ himself being part of it. This is a group that we want to associate ourselves with rather than those who are doing the mocking. But notice, it's not just blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the insulted and mocked. It's not even blessed are the Christians who are persecuted, insulted, and mocked. It's blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness and because of me in Luke. In Luke, he says, For, for uh, the Son of Man, for my sake, because you're attached to me, you are mocked and you are reviled and you are insulted. Being persecuted for being like Jesus and following Jesus because they hated Jesus, and he says, They'll hate you too. There will be those who will. In John 15, He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in John 3, Jesus says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Shining a light can make people uncomfortable. I remember a little while ago, We had a little plumbing issue before we got a new uh, uh, in-sinkerator, a uh, garbage disposal thing. we We had an old one. It was from, I think, the early 80s, like a lot of things in our house were when we moved in. And anytime anything fibrous in any way went down, we'd start to have a problem. And what I would have to do is go downstairs and open up the trap on that PVC pipe. And I remember the first time I shined a flashlight in there, I very nearly lost my lunch. The smell and the like slick, slimy, black gunk in there. And my first thought was this stuff is always in my house. I just am not seeing it. Ugh. But looking in there, shining the light in there was uncomfortable. I was very excited once I'd run the snake through and got to clear it cleared out to just put it back on and not think about it again. The world has the same response. Jesus did the same thing uh, and found the same uh, answer from people when he came, especially to the morally self-righteous, upstanding religious leaders. He said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Inside is death, but outside you look wonderful. And they said, don't shine a light inside. That's my business. And they responded harshly. This is happening now a little more and a little more even in the West. And I think it may, in my lifetime even, I hope not, I pray not, I have hope that it won't, But it's possible we will pass from just the kind of insulting, under-the-breath comments persecution to more open persecution. Even today in Canada, there are uh, Bible verses that if you read them out loud on a street corner, that's a hate crime, and you're going to jail. I'm sure they bring you very politely to jail because it's Canada, but again, much persecution is rather civilized. In fact, there was even a, a ruling that human rights legislation in Canada prevents religious schools from teaching what a child or parent might find Offensive. We're moving this way in our land as well, and so we, you know, we've already seen this kind of thing. And and in Matthew five eleven, we read, "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account." This is the Western world's new response to almost anything biblical. You ever watch TV and think to yourself, "Where are all the Christians?" In America, there are an awful lot of Christians. Why aren't any of them in these families on sitcoms or, or working for the Special Victims Unit or whatever? And when a Christian shows up, you're like, okay, that's the serial killer. Got it. <laughs> or that's the, that's the pariah, the rube, the dope. That's the Ned Flanders. I got it. Am I suggesting that we are put upon like the Christians who were thrown to the lions? No, but Jesus said, even though it's not as extreme of persecution, blessed are you when they mock you and insult you and throw it right in your teeth, that you are sharing in Christ's suffering. They treated him the same way. They treated the prophets the same way. Rejoice and be glad when that happens. They treated the prophets the very same way. 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived so shining the light leads to one of two outcomes like jesus said you don't put a lamp under a bowl you let it shine so everyone in the house can see by it and he said so let your light shine before men that they will see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven praise your father in heaven either that will happen or others will see the light It will shine into the pvc pipe of their soul they won't like it and they will try to snuff it out but we're commanded to shine the light all the same are you shining the light do you shine the light or have you put a bowl over it if christianity were illegal tomorrow would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of jesus or would your neighbors say i think maybe they're lutheran or baptist or I don't know, Melkite? Maybe they're nothing. I'm not sure. They kind of keep it close to the vest. That is something to think about. I think there are two reasons that perhaps our neighbors would not know who we are. There's two reasons that maybe we don't face even this mild kind of persecution in our lives. One is that we look just like the world, act just like the world. Our references are just the same as the world. Our values are the same as the world. And so there's no reason... For us to be mocked or persecuted and the second is that we are following jesus but we're living so completely in a christian bubble that no one outside of it is affected in any way by our lives or here's what we're all about neither of those is acceptable for a follower of jesus if you want to know how not to be persecuted go with the flow blend in like a chameleon do what the world does laugh when god is mocked Or at least smile uncomfortably and say nothing. Agree that all religions lead to God or no religion. Who really cares? In fact, give your tacit approval to this absurd notion that our culture has embraced that there is no real right or wrong, at least not in spiritual things. Don't mention hell. Don't take any kind of moral stand on moral issues that might elicit some angry response. And certainly do not proclaim the gospel. Do not share your faith. And don't indicate that there is one way to the Father, and that is by Jesus Christ. Then all men will speak well of you, for the most part, unless you're obnoxious. And by the way, if you are mocked, persecuted, and lied about because you're obnoxious, there's there's no blessed reward for you. (laughs) But... If we look back at that Sermon on the Plain, Jesus does a little extra at the end there. It's like the bonus features on the DVD, right? He goes through the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are Beatitudes. Then he gets into the woe to you, woe to you, the flip side of this. And the flip side of this Beatitude is, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So you're either going to be spoken well of and lumped in with the false prophets, spoken well of by everyone. No one can think of anything that you say or do that makes them uncomfortable, rubs them the wrong way, or you're lumped in with the true prophets who were, in the same way, targeted, mocked, laughed about, and often even openly persecuted or killed. You don't want to miss out on being blessed, on leaping for joy, and we don't want to miss out on the other reason annexed here, which is number two: for great is your reward in heaven. Many Christians today are too spiritual for rewards, right? Uh, doing a good thing is its own reward. I don't, I don't, I don't care about heaven. I just, I just love Jesus so much. I don't, I don't need any of that extra stuff. I don't. Are you kidding me? I mean, I don't. I guess I don't need it. If there's a reward on the table. I'm taking it though, right? We look in the Scriptures, Abraham wasn't too good for rewards. Moses wasn't. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then in Hebrews 12, the next chapter, even Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. And then he becomes higher and higher, lifted up. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a reward that will make any suffering we've done pale in comparison. It would be absurd, it would be a joke to even try to hold them up next to one another. We are part of a kingdom, as you read those Beatitudes, you see it is completely backwards. The first or last, the last is first. The greatest is a little kid the, the 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 idea of go, going down and bowing before a king who is homeless, who is put to death like a common criminal, the whole thing is backwards, and we see that that is the case here as well. We mourn over our sins, which the world ignores or even celebrates, but we rejoice over our suffering for righteousness, which the world mourns about. It's backwards. But when we are faithful, the world will see you suffering and see your scars like they saw at Judson's. Or maybe your scars are internal because it's been words and you know what, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will sometimes hurt even more. But even when the world doesn't see or even when the world doesn't care, blessed are you. Leap for joy, rejoice and be glad for they did the same thing to the prophets before you and great is your reward in heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a a message of comfort and encouragement and promise. For those of us who live in a time when it is very common to mock Christians, to laugh at our our worldview, and even to demonize and, and villainize our point of view, to call love hate. Lord, we are tempted in the flesh to respond in kind when someone mocks us. I know I am. And Lord, I know I'm good at it. That's the worst part. I pray that you would give us that spirit, that same mind that was in Christ Jesus, that we would be willing to simply say, I'm going to rejoice and be glad because I've just joined a very exclusive club and I have a reward waiting for me. I am willing to be merciful. Maybe mine not responding in kind will show that there is something to this Jesus message, to this gospel. Maybe this will be the thing that causes that person who's mocking me to finally turn in faith, or at least to consider the claims of Christ. Lord, we know that this has happened again and again and again. We pray that it would happen in us, that you would give us that strength, you would give us that gentleness, that meekness, that you would help us to have that Jesus view, that backwards kingdom view of things. In your holy name we pray. Amen.